2022 is a significant year for me because tomorrow marks the beginning of my 20th year of full-time ministry at Valley Center Community Church, which is just crazy for me to think about. Being in one church for uh, 20 years to be able to, to serve in one community uh, for that period of time. Later on in the year, um, I'll be celebrating my seventh year as lead pastor. I came to Valley Center Community Church in the role of children's pastor and then associate and then lead pastor. And um, just having some time over the holiday season just to reflect on those 20 years and what that has meant for me and for my family. I wrote down some of the things that I had been learning over these 20 years and things I hope for the next 20 I will remember and put into play. I often joke when I look at pictures of my younger self, I say, oh, little David, so many things I would tell you. Um, But what has been most remarkable to me as I reflected was how much in just a 20-year period of time, culture has shifted and changed. From when I came on staff at the church to today. Uh, 20 years is a long period of time, but it's also a very short period of time. And when I think about, like 20 years ago, when I came on staff, smartphones weren't even really a a thing yet. Uh, Blackberries were in existence, so you could do some emails and stuff, but like people weren't even texting. Think about how much your communication has changed in the last 20 years. The primary way that people like to communicate is, is through text. People don't actually like getting phone calls all that much or, or even picking up if, if you do call them, if they don't know the number. We've changed in how we communicate. Smartphones didn't exist. Even think about this. Social media wasn't even a thing 20 years ago. Nobody even knew what social media was, and yet it's had a huge impact on especially the younger generation, but how we disseminate information, how we think about ourselves, all of that has shifted over the last 20 years. And that's just like in the realms of communication and interpersonal relationship when it comes to values. Like 20 years ago, the idea of uh, a man marrying another man or a woman marrying another woman that gay marriage would be a reality, that that was something that was still kind of unthinkable. The idea that there were more than two genders wasn't even in the the water stream, if you will, of, of culture. I read something literally this morning that is an indication of just how radically... Culture has changed in what's acceptable and what's not. There was a swim meet between uh, a collegiate swim meet that took place yesterday. And I'm not even going to necessarily get this right, but a transgender um, woman um, defeated a transgender man in the swim meet. They were swimming as women. But so, so here's what happened. The article in the story... A woman swimming in a women's meet who's transitioning to become a man defeated a man who's transitioning to become a woman. Are you tracking with me? So that just happened, and that was written about as, like, no big deal. 
I just, I share that with you to say like 20 years ago, that no one could even have, could really have thought about that being a thing. And today, if you were to speak against that or to see that as odd or wrong, you would be viewed as, as a bigot, somebody who's uncaring and somebody who's insensitive. Culture has shifted. Culture has changed in just a very short period of time. And I say all that, and I kind of set that context because I am so looking forward to us as a church taking the next series of weeks and months to study on Sunday mornings the book of First Timothy. Because the book of First Timothy was a book that was written to the church, to the people of God. And it was written so that the church might know how to live in the world. And remarkably, this book, written some 2,000 years ago, the truths that are in it are truths that still speak to us today and still speak in such a way to help us think about the changing world in which we live. So what I want to invite you to do this morning is I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. That's where we're going to spend pretty much all our time this morning. But before I jump into it, I just want you to know, if you're, especially if you're visiting with us, today's message is going to be just a little different because I'm introducing our study of this book. And like a new car or when you hop into a rental car for the first time, before you dive into the study of a book of the Bible, while it's all God's word, you want to get your bearings. This summer, um, we had gone on vacation somewhere, and we were renting a, a van where we went. And I remember getting in the car and thinking, you know what? Cars are pretty much all the same. Gas pedals, brake pedals, steering wheels. But air conditioning, right, is in one location. Even the shifter is in a different location. And I've always found that before I start driving a rental car, I just want to know, like, what am I dealing with here? Like, where is everything so that I feel comfortable as I hit the road? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning with 1 Timothy. We're not just going to simply dive right into it without understanding some of the context. Because the Bible, while it's all the Word of God, not every portion of it is the same. You have some portions of God's Word that are poetry, other portions that are historical narrative, other sections of it, which are prophecy, wisdom literature, letters, epistles. And so you don't want to just simply come to a book of the Bible and think, oh, it's all the same. No, there's a context and a style in which this book was written. So we're going to talk about that in 1 Timothy. We're also going to talk not just about the style, but the context in which it was written because it was written at a certain time and place into specific people. So let's first start by reading the first four verses of chapter one, and then we're going to address some of, these, some of these questions. So it starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Well, Valley Center Community Church, when you 
open up and you start reading 1 Timothy, a number of the questions that we have about the type of book this is and even the context are immediately answered. If you notice, what we have here in 1 Timothy is a letter. That's the style that it's written in. We know that it's uh, a letter because we see that the author and the recipient are both spoken about right away. In the ancient world, when they wrote letters, rather than putting their name at the very end, they put it in the beginning. And that's what we have here. And we have here the author of the letter identifying himself as none other than the Apostle Paul. And beyond the Apostle Paul, we know that he's writing this letter to a man by the name of Timothy. And we can also ascertain that the relationship between Timothy and Paul is a very unique relationship. Now, I'm not going to give a lot of time going into the life of the Apostle Paul. Most of you should know that Paul was one of those called by Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel throughout the ancient world. And when you read the book of Acts, it's a book that records the movement of the gospel as the different apostles went throughout the ancient world proclaiming the gospel. And Paul, as he did that, as he made his way through the ancient world, one of the places that he stopped and when he stopped, met a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy had come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of his mother and grandmother, as far as we can tell. And Paul saw something in Timothy, and he invited Timothy and brought Timothy on his missionary's journeys. So Paul takes this young man, probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s, and Timothy travels with Paul. Paul models for him gospel ministry for a number of years. And then, as the text says, Paul eventually plants a church in Ephesus. He spends two years in this one city of Ephesus, we're going to talk about it in a second, and he leaves Timothy there to pastor the church. So that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, one, Paul really must have thought highly of Timothy. He must have really felt like Timothy was a very capable young man, that he would leave him to pastor a church that Paul had helped to found and that Paul cared about so deeply. But what we learn in the text is that Timothy, he is ministering in a very specific place. Timothy is the pastor of a church in this place called Ephesus. Now, as we go through this study of 1 Timothy, I'll probably show you a map of Ephesus, but here's what you need to know about Ephesus. It was on one of the major trade routes. In fact, actually, two of the trade routes um, connected right there at Ephesus, and it's in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so it was a big metropolitan city because people had to travel through Ephesus to get from east to west. Um, a lot of commercialization, a lot of business taking place in Ephesus. If I were to compare it to a city today based upon like what we know historically, it's not like a Los Angeles or New York, probably more like maybe a Chicago or a Boston as far as its prominence. But there was one thing you need to know about the city of Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana, depending if you were Greek or if you were Roman. This temple was huge. It stood out. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people didn't just come for business to Ephesus. They also came to Ephesus for religious purposes. And if you lived in Ephesus, like worship 
of Artemis was a big deal. Festivals took place. You would go there to dine and to eat and to offer sacrifices. Like, if you were to be a part of the life of the city, you took time to worship in the temple. Why do I tell you that? Because when the message of the gospel comes to Ephesus, and it begins to transform the lives of the people there, when Paul then lives Timothy to be a pastor there, he is leaving Timothy to pastor in a place that does not have Judeo-Christian values, does not believe in Jesus Christ, is not only consumed with consumerism and commercialism, but also is a city that is rampant in idolatry and the worship of these false gods. You want to talk about a tough place to minister, that's where Timothy finds himself. So, the style of what we're going to read, it's a letter. It's between Paul and Timothy. The context is Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. But here's a side note. It's actually kind of a big one. I want you, though, as a church, when you read this letter, to understand something about the church itself. The church in Ephesus would not have had its own building. You're like, we know what that's like. We have a tent. Well, no, they didn't even have a tent, okay? They met in homes. That's how the church would have functioned. And these homes, we're not talking mega mansions. So most likely when the church gathered, best guesses is that the church in Ephesus was probably, when this was written, no larger than 150 people. It could have been larger, but probably not. Everybody in the church would have known everybody else. Not like here even. Like we have two services, a number of people that come in. Many of you don't know many people at Valley Center Community Church. Not the case in Ephesus. Even though the town was large, you would have known the people in the church because it was vastly more intimate. Which means, as you read the book of 1 Timothy, there's going to be these moments where Paul is going to reference certain situations. And when he references those situations everybody who read the letter would have known exactly who he's talking about. So when he talks about certain men, and he's going to say certain women, he's going to talk about certain widows in the church. Everybody knew who those people were. And, and, and so read this letter recognizing the intimacy of it, the personal nature of it. But while there's an intimacy and a personal nature, this book nonetheless also has deep message for us today. <clears throat> and I can say that because right smack dab in the middle of the letter, Paul tells us explicitly the purpose for his writing. Turn over with me to chapter 3 for a minute. Chapter 3, verse 14, 15. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Paul comes in the middle of the letter, and he spells out, here's why I'm writing to you, Timothy. And church, this is so helpful, as then we interpret everything that comes before and after it. He says in verse 14, I hope, Timothy, to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave 
in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As plain as day, Paul comes and he speaks to Timothy and some 2,000 years later to us. And he says, here's why I'm writing this letter. Here's the purpose. There's so much that are in these verses that we're going to unpack, but it starts very simply with this. The purpose of the letter is to instruct God's people on how they are to conduct themselves, or in Paul's words, how they are to behave in the church. Paul, writing to Timothy, speaks very plainly. I left you in Ephesus to pastor the church, but I have more to say. I want to come and I want to visit you, but if I don't get to you in time, there are things that you need to hear, things that I need to share with you before I even get there. Now, church, when I read these verses, the first thing that jumps out to me, the first thing that we should recognize and take in is that these verses tell us that God has designed his church and its members to function in a specific way. We, as the people of God, are not left to our own devices. We're not left to how we think we should function as the church and as members of the church. No, God has clearly laid out, 1 Timothy being one of those places, how you and I are to function as the people of God, how we are to live as the church. And as we make our way through this book, in fact, I invite you, I really encourage you, to read through this book a couple of times. It only takes about 15 minutes. You're going to see Paul come, and he's going to give instruction on the leadership structure of the church. Did you know that the church is to have a certain leadership structure? He's going to talk about how we're to evaluate those leaders within the church, how they are to carry out their responsibilities, the importance of the members of the church being able to discern truth and error. He's going to talk about the role of men and women in the life of the church, how rich and poor are to think about themselves, how you can correct a leader in the church in the proper way to do so. There's this one section in chapter 4 that's really powerful about what things we are ultimately to value in our day-to-day -day lives and devote ourselves to, and what things less so. He's going to give us teaching on how we think about money as a church. God has designed his church and its members to function in specific ways. And so when he says, here's the purpose of the letter— like, we got to see that. we got to see that we're not left to come up with this on our own. And if we're confused, if we're, if we're wrestling with as the people of God, should we be engaged in this thing? Should we be engaged in this thing? How should we handle this type of situation? We don't have to simply throw our hands up and say, what do you think? What do you think? We get to come to this word. Praise God for that. Amen? 
And so that's one of the things that Paul is saying. But there's something else here that stands out to me. And this is one that, well, it's not explicitly stated, but it's implied. I shared with you that Paul was the pastor of the church in Ephesus for two years. Two years! Think about this. The church in Ephesus had Paul as its pastor. I'm telling you right now, if like Paul rolled up on the scene and he's like, hey, I'd like to pastor Valley Center Community Church. I'm like, I'll resign, no problem, go ahead, right? Like who wouldn't want that guy to be your pastor? And so he was with them for two years, pouring into them, modeling life, teaching them, instructing them. And yet, he comes and he says, I have more to share with you. There's more that you need to know. I find it striking. He's Paul. Didn't he get it all out on the table? Didn't they all know what he was wanting to to say? So when Paul comes and he says to even Timothy, Timothy who had learned from Paul, Paul, he's saying, Timothy, you don't know it all. It tells us a couple of things. Number one, we must never be content to think that we've got it all figured out that there's not still room for you and I to learn and to grow. To think that we've mastered the word of God and that we can't still learn and grow and change if Paul comes and says, although I ministered to you for two years, yet there's more you need to know. Man, at Valley Center Community Church, I pray that we would be a church that humbly, continually receives the word. And that we never get to a point that I never from this pulpit or anyone else who stands in this pulpit communicates or gives the air that we've got this all figured out perfectly. But that instead we are people who need more and more of what this word proclaims. It also tells me that as a leader in the church, for the rest of the pastoral staff, for the elders, we have a responsibility to keep proclaiming the truth. We can't stop doing it. If Paul says there's still more to know, then we have to be able to say there's still more truth that we need to hear. And one of the things I wrote this week was this. I said, if Paul spent two years with these people, then these verses are telling us that we need, no matter if we're a pastor or an elder or just somebody who comes and serves as a part of the body, All of us have a responsibility to keep passing on to the next generation the truth of who God is and what he has done. Amen? Like, it never stops. That's what Paul is saying here. So, that's the purpose of the letter. To instruct God's people on how they are to conduct themselves in the church. So we know the style We know it's a letter. We know Paul wrote it to Timothy. We understand their relationship. We understand why he was writing to them. But I want to leave you this morning with three reasons Paul gives us in the text of why what I just said to you matters. Why we as a church need this book. Why we need to know how to behave as the people of God. And it starts with this. Paul argues in verses 14 and 15. He states in verses 14 and 15 that we are God's household here on earth. Why do we spend time studying and trying to understand how to behave 
as the people of God because Paul says, look at it. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one, that is you and I, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Think about what Paul has just said here. I don't want you to miss it. Paul is coming, and he's not speaking like pie in the sky, just this broad concept of church. Paul is coming, and he is clearly equating the household of God with the local church. When you and I, Paul says, look at Valley Center Community Church, when we come to gather together, Paul is saying this isn't a club This isn't just some gathering. You are collectively with me, the household of God here on earth. Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it what? Is in heaven. When we are gathered, when we look at Valley Center Community Church, we're not an organization and we're not a club. We're not just some kind of like, oh, group of Christians This verse says, we're the household of God. That's what God considers us. So Valley Center Community Church, God looks at us and says, that's God's household here on earth. Grace Point Church, just up the road in Valley Center, that's God's household here on earth. We prayed for Maranatha Chapel down to Rancho Bernardo. That's God's household here on earth. You can't look at the local church and just say it's an organization and it's just, you know, whatever. No. God says, when I see Valley Center Community Church, I see my household gathered. That's who we are. Because Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of that local church in Ephesus. He's not talking about the church global as being the household of God. He is speaking specifically to Timothy and to all who are part of the church in Ephesus and saying, you're the household of God. There's no perfect church, and you and I might have had issue with people and leadership in other church, but every church that is gathered and proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, God looks past the imperfections of its people, of its leaders, and says, I see it through the lens of Jesus Christ. It's my household. So why is it a big deal that the people who are part of God's household know how to behave themselves? I hope it's obvious because we are God's representatives, his sons and his daughters gathering together. And see, listen, the one thing that I, that's hard teaching the word of God in the American context is this. Are you ready for this? This is going to seem kind of weird. We don't have a monarchy. And that kind of hurts us. Let me explain what I mean. I'm not, you know, petitioning for a monarchy anytime soon. But for every society and civilization for like the last, well, whatever, they understood monarchy. They understood a king. They understood that the king had a family and that family represented the king. And so the king had a household. And so societies, they looked and they said, every member of the household of the king is a representative of the king. And so for us to be a part of God's household, it matters how we live our lives because we are said, we alone, because of Jesus Christ, 
are said to be part of God's household. This is why we're so big here at Valley Center Community Church to say, like, you just don't play church. Don't come and say, I attend Valley Center Community Church. You're either part of the household or you're not. You can't be on the fringe of a church. You're either, yep, that's my household here on earth, or I'm part of this household. It's either one or the other. That's the way the Bible speaks. And so why is it important for us? Well, because church, when the world looks at Valley Center Community Church, what it's supposed to see is the home of God. It's supposed to see the people who understand that to be sons and daughters of God is to be different, to be distinct, and to look to him as the head, to him as the ruler, and no one else. Are you, tra- are you tracking with me? This is why it's so important. But there's another reason, Paul says. Like, that should be enough. It's like, why, why should we care about how we behave and conduct ourselves? Because you're God's children in his household. But there's another reason. Paul makes this claim. It's a claim that doesn't sit well in a postmodern world. He says, well... Verse 15, I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When was the last time you threw around the words pillar and buttress of the truth, right? What's he saying here? We're not just God's household. We are the protectors and proclaimers of God's truth. That out of Every other realm of society, we alone, this is why it doesn't sit well in a postmodern world, we alone have the corner on the truth. We are not led and guided by the philosophies of men, the whims of a society, or cultural change. We have God's word, and God's word is truth. And Paul says, the church, why does it matter how you live and how you behave? Because you're the ones, we're the ones who are supposed to have the truth. We're the ones who are supposed to have the light. We're the ones that are supposed to have a knowledge of right and wrong. We're the ones who are supposed to know the truth that can set people free. Amen? We are the protectors of it, Paul says, and the proclaimers of God's truth. And so, if we are the protectors and the proclaimers of the truth, that truth should mark us and change our lives so that when culture comes and says, you need to get with the times, we come and we say, we don't need to get with the times. We come back to say, are the times in accordance with what is true? And so we don't guess at, is that acceptable? Is that not acceptable? Should we believe those things? Should we not believe those things? Because we are a people who come back to this book and to this word. Paul was so adamant about this that when he wrote to the churches in Galatia, he said, listen, I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if I come back to you, and I start proclaiming to you a gospel that's different than the one I originally proclaimed to you. Consider me accursed. 
kick me out of the church. Even if I, your pastor, come back to you and change what I'm saying to be true, don't believe me. It's why Paul says, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus so that you would protect the truth and keep error from coming into the church. Valley Center, we're going to study this book. We're going to listen to God speak to us from it. We're going to consider how the gospel changes us and shapes us and leads and guides how we conduct ourselves because we are members of the household of God. We are the ones who hold to the truth. But finally, and this I think is the most powerful of all, we worship the God who is alive. We worship the God who is alive. Do you see it right here in the text? He says that we are part of the household of God, which is the church of what? The living God. Do you believe and know that the God you worship, he is alive? He's alive. That changes things. He's not dead. In Ephesus was a temple to Artemis. The temple was huge, over a football field long, over 118 feet wide, as best we can tell. This huge temple, and in the middle of it was a statue made of stone that people said, there is the god Artemis. There's your god. And it wasn't just in Ephesus. They had temples to God in Rome, in Athens, in Corinth, in Thessaloniki, all over the ancient world, there were these temples to these gods, but every one of them was made of stone. And so what is Paul doing here? He's talking smack. He's saying, don't you know? Don't you see? Why are we different? Why do we function in a way unlike the rest of the world? Because they're worshiping gods of stone, and we worship the God who is alive. Jesus Christ entered into our world. The Father sent the Son. He lived, and he died, but he rose again, and he gives his spirit to his people. The spirit is alive and active in all of us. Paul is saying, why are we different? Why do we ultimately function in a way that the world at times can't understand? Because our God is alive. And if you grasp that, if you take that in, if you believe that, it changes everything. Because they're all worshiping statues of stone. That's not us. That wasn't them 2,000 years ago, and it's not us today. Listen, there are very few people worshiping statues of stone today, but there are people worshiping lots of other things. They live and they worship money, prestige, power. All those things are dead and dying, and they only lead to death. We have the truth because we have a God who is alive. For Valley Center Community Church, listen, I would venture to say that most of you here today would not argue with me on that truth. Now, I believe God's alive. And I would say, you know what? I believe it too. I know it at least. But what we will be challenged with, what our hearts will continue to be moved towards, is it's one thing to know and to believe it. 
It's another thing to allow that knowledge and belief that God is alive to so wash over us every single day that we live in the power of the Spirit who is alive within us. And I want that so desperately for you and I want that so desperately for me. Because out there, outside of the household of God, you're not going to find the truth that sets you free. You're not going to find a God who is alive. You're not going to find the freedom that only Christ brings. Amen? So here's what we're going to do right now. One of the things we do each and every week is we come to the Lord's table. And we're going to do that at this moment. In fact, I want to invite you, if you didn't get the elements at the table in the back, you can grab those right now. And we're going to move right to the Lord's table this morning, and here's why. Because the last point of this message is that our God is alive. And when we gather as the people of God, when we gather as God's household, well, that's one of the reasons why we take communion on Sunday mornings. Because the household is gathered together, and one of the things that households do when they gather together is they take a meal together. And we're partaking of the Lord's Supper. And in the proclamation of the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in a moment, we're going to take the cup. And the cup says to us that in Christ, there is a new covenant and the forgiveness of our sins. A new covenant that goes on for eternity. We can only have that covenant if Christ is still alive. And so I want to invite you this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. But listen, this is for those who've put their faith and trust in Christ. If you haven't done that yet, you need to consider this morning, who is the God that you worship? If you don't worship the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save you, then this isn't a meal for you to take because that's what we're proclaiming, that Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for who? For you, for us. If you believe that to be true, you take and eat and you do it in remembrance of him. His body given and then his blood shed. That's what the cup is a reminder to us of. <clears throat> the proclamation. Christ on the night that he was betrayed, then he also later in the meal took this cup. And he blessed it and he said the words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. He would also say, I won't drink of this cup again till I drink with you in glory. <laughs> There's a day to come in the future where we will gather with all of God's households with our Savior and we will drink the cup celebrating that victory. But until that day, we take and we drink and we do it in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we taste of the bread. We drink of the cup. In doing those things, Lord, we are making gospel proclamation to our hearts and to one another. There's not one man, woman, or child in this room who is saved by a work that they have done. But the only way that we are brought into your household, the only way that we are made alive and worshipers of you is because Jesus Christ went before us with his perfect life, 
to his death on the cross, to his resurrection from the dead. We are today part of your family because of what Christ has done. And so, Lord, we celebrate that, we rejoice in that truth, and we pray that there are, if there are any in this place who don't know the life, the freedom that comes in and through Jesus Christ because they have been living for themselves, that, Lord, they would see today that they are living for gods who are dead, that they are failing to hear and to know the truth, and that if they would simply come to you today and say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have not measured up, that my works are but filthy rags before you, and I instead accept the work that Christ has done to free me, to make me a part of your family. Lord, that they would pray that and that they would know Christ and the salvation that he brings because it is in him, our wonderful Savior's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.